0: In the northern Italian city of Trieste, on Cesare Battisti Street, there is an old café known as the Café San Marco. If you go there on Saturday morning, you may meet a retired police inspector by the name of Moretti, a modest and unassuming man with a rather extensive grey beard and rectangular spectacles. And if you happen to get into conversation with him, He may tell you the bizarre story of the terror that struck the tiny hillside village of Conconello in 1993. Conconelo is a beautiful and sunny little village with a spectacular view of the sea perched high on the hill above Trieste. The number three bus terminates there struggling laboriously up the ever steeper gradient for the sake of a handful of villagers. It's almost impossible to imagine that anything bad would ever happen there. And yet, in 1993, a wave of petty thefts hit the village. The main target of the thief was food, at first. The villagers simply locked their doors at night, the thefts always took place at night, and gossiped about it and laughed it off, but then the thievery began to take on a more sinister aspect. Cats and small dogs went missing, and a strange figure was seen scuttling around the streets at night, always quick to run off. If anyone shouted after it. The figure was dressed in what a local girl described as filthy black rags, and seemed oddly stooped, almost like an ape, yet it was distinctly human. The matter was not taken very seriously by the police, until one day an elderly man, an invalid, was found half-eaten. The villagers took to barricading themselves in their houses with shotguns in their laps. Yet even then, the predominant theory among the police was that the man had been attacked by a bear or a stray dog. A mob of outraged villagers descended on the city hall, demanding something be done and that was when Inspector Moretti was assigned to the case. Moretti quickly identified the ragged, stooped figure as the chief suspect and policemen were assigned to patrol the area at night. The figure was quickly caught and interrogated by Moretti. Unfortunately, Moretti says, the suspect, who gave his name only as Lorenzo turned out to be quite insane, and had to be committed to a high-security psychiatric facility. Concanello returned to its former peaceful existence. Only after a little alcohol has oiled the gears of Moretti's brain can he be drawn on the precise nature of the suspect's madness. If you want him to tell you what he himself experienced after interviewing Lorenzo, you'd better hope he's in a drinking mood, because that requires considerably more than a little alcohol. The fact is that Lorenzo told a tale that was quite coherent but utterly incredible. Moretti quickly judged that a psychiatrist should be called in but nevertheless, could not tear himself away from Lorenzo's ramblings. In response to questions about the half-eaten man and the missing pets, the suspect insisted on recounting a tale that began with a certain Enzo Carafaggio, who was a researcher at the University of Pavia from 1892 to 1908. The following is a summary of Lorenzo's story, and while the initial facts that Lorenzo recounted can be corroborated by records kept at the University of Pavia, subsequent parts of the story must be taken with a pinch of salt. After all, these were the ravings of a probable homicidal lunatic, although Lorenzo insisted that the old man had already died from natural causes when he happened upon his corpse, and began to consume it. As far back as 1887, long before anyone had ever thought of the idea of a modern computer, Carafaggio conceived of the idea of creating an artificial brain. From Carafaggio's notes available to authorised researchers, at the University of Pavia, we can see that Carafaggio had indeed hit upon the essential elements of modern artificial neural networks. He knew that it would be necessary to connect together layers of units capable of a non-linear response in such a way that connections between the units could be strengthened or weakened in order to facilitate learning. The difference between Carafaggio's work and its modern equivalent was only that, rather than doped silicon as his chosen medium, Carafaggio proposed to use fungal cells. He embarked on a series of experiments in which he attempted to determine whether suitably prepared fungus would be capable of learning. By the time he arrived at the University of Pavia, Carrafaggio had already proven that such cellular networks could be taught to produce certain electrical outputs in response to certain inputs. His laboratory notes show that initially he used cannibalised teletype equipment to provide input and accept output but from there he progressed to using a telephone microphone and a speaker. His research involved extraordinarily high voltages produced by an arrangement of resonant coils which we would now regard as a kind of tesla coil. The fundamentals of Carafaggio's experimental arrangement including details of how to nurture the fungus, specifically a kind of soil fungus unknown to science at the time, were all in place by 1893. From this point onwards, Carafaggio nurtured his experimental fungus contraption like a baby. According to Lorenzo, for, no independent record of this exists, Carafaggio began by intoning certain sounds into the microphone and either punishing or rewarding the fungus via electrical stimulation according to how well it reproduced these sounds. Eventually he was able to get the fungus to repeat entire words. He then began to teach elementary logic and grammar to the fungus. By 1898, Carafagio was able to have perfectly cogent conversations with the fungus brain. By 1902, the level of intelligence of the fungus had exceeded that of any human being, and Carafagio was employing undergraduate students to read books to the fungus and have conversations with it they were under the impression that there was another human being at the end of the line that connected the microphone and Carafaggio told them they were involved in some sort of psychological experiment in which the other participant would pretend to be highly intelligent but ignorant of the basic facts of human society. By 1906 the fungus was able to formulate theories of physics. It independently derived the theory of special relativity and anticipated general relativity and quantum mechanics by many years. Then said Lorenzo, according to Inspector Moretti, the fungus went far beyond that. No problem in the realm of physics was too complex for the fungus to solve. It was able to link gravity to electromagnetism and to uncover simple methods for performing nuclear fusion. It was able to transcend space itself, although time travel proved to be impossible. By 1908, Carafaggio was no longer considered sane by the university authorities and was expelled He no longer considered himself an ordinary mortal human being, but a god. This aspect of the story can indeed be corroborated by the University of Pavia records. He had become prone to gibbering outlandishly about creating new worlds and mastering the infinity of space. According to Lorenzo, says Moretti, Carafaggio had located a distant planet near the Star of Arcturus and was terraforming it with a view to creating a paradise. This he succeeded in doing. And he proceeded to populate this paradise with the finest people that he felt the Earth could do without. He named the planet Svelia. It is true that between 1910 and 1913, three separate members of the faculty of the University of Pavia went missing and were never seen again on Earth. Carafaggio mostly stuck to rescuing people who attempted to commit suicide or people who were involved in terrible accidents. These, if he judged them of sufficient caliber, He would transport instantaneously through the vastness of space, and they would find themselves in a pretty meadow, somewhere near a city, on the planets Felia, orbiting Arcturus. As for these cities, they were constructed by vast machines, according to plans thought up in Carafaggio's ingenious mind and realised by the incomprehensibly superlative intelligence of the fungus brain. Carafaggio created vast garden cities of towering spires, enormous labyrinthine villages of stone seated upon rocks floating in the air, and myriad treehouses fabricated in gargantuan trees of monstrous and unfathomable proportions. The inhabitants of Svelia wanted for nothing. They were watched over carefully by great silent machines, dotted around the planet, housed within mountains and underneath desert plains. The residents of Svelia had only to utter certain cryptic incantations, or perform certain obscure gestures, and the finest foods and beverages would appear in front of them. They could fly wherever they wanted in magical gravity-defying carriages, only they could not leave the planet. No one on Svelia ever suffered illness or serious accident. At a certain point, however, Carafaggio himself began to indulge various passions and appetites to an unhealthy extent. He began increasingly to see Svelia not as a state populated by citizens in possession of inalienable and intrinsic rights by virtue of their humanity, but as his personal playground. Carafaggio's desires grew steadily ever more twisted and perverted his passions sprouted into monstrous addictions. Far from the benevolent Emperor-King of his earlier fantasies, the benign dictator that he had in reality once been, he became a loathsome and degenerate tyrant. As evil subsumed his soul, he turned to creating monstrosities for his own amusement, Horrible creatures and disgusting plants. Seeing that the only law was now that Carafaggio must be feared and obeyed, the inhabitants of Svelia themselves grew cruel and debased. Many petty local tyrants arose, only to be replaced by others, or executed by Carafaggio via grotesque methods. Lorenzo did not claim to know for how long this state of affairs had persisted. He knew only that Carafaggio had increasingly neglected the ultimate and only source of his power, the fungus brain. The brain, and here Lorenzo claimed only to be repeating rumour, began to rot. It became infected with moulds and its astounding intelligence declined first to the level of an ordinary human being, and eventually to that of an idiot. The great cities of Svelia fell into ruin and decline. The vast spires crumbled and fell, only shards and ghastly stumps remaining, although even these could still rise to hundreds of metres. The floating rock villages mostly crashed into the ground, a few remaining aloft via some sort of freakish inertia. Uncountable thousands drowned as colossal underwater cities succumbed to the pressure of the water. As for the countless tree houses, the immense trees supporting them became diseased, and many fell to their deaths or became stranded in their blackened, fetid branches. Svelia became ruled only by violence and chaos. Hardly a child was conceived except via violence of the worst type. The population crashed, and those who remained were the degraded semi-human progeny of the unhinged dregs of the former population riddled with nightmarish deformities of mind and body. Eventually, Carafaggio himself was captured and crucified. By then, he was a slavering wreck, quite out of his mind, and as happy nailed to a cross as anywhere else. He, Lorenzo, claimed to be one of these very dregs, but asserted that his ancestors, had been spurred the worst of the Great Fall, as they called it, due to living on an isolated island. Starvation had forced his parents to make their way to the nearest mainland in an improvised boat, but they had died of thirst before ever seeing land. Lorenzo had found himself in what appeared to be one of the lower realms of Hell, as far as he could tell and there his existence had hung by a thread for an indeterminate amount of time. He knew only that he had grown from a child to a man, eating whatever he could find and continually running from the unspeakable demons, human, semi-human and animal, that now inhabited the land. One day he had taken shelter in a cave and at the back of the cave he had found something astonishing. According to the legends that Lorenzo had heard when a small boy, Carafaggio had constructed a series of portals by which one could travel to the fabled planet of Earth. These portals had been carefully guarded and later destroyed. Yet it appeared that Carafaggio had forgotten at least one of them, because here it was. A silver circle surrounding a diaphanous membrane through which it was possible to pass across immense leagues of the vacuum of space and arrive in a cave in the hillside of Trieste, just outside the village of Concanello. As far as Lorenzo was concerned, he had found paradise. After passing through the portal, he remained in the cave on the earth side of the portal, leaving only at night to steal whatever food he might find. Since Svelia had been overrun with feral cats, these had been one of his principal food sources, and he found the cats of Concanello plump and juicy. Neither could he have survived on Svelia, without being prepared to eat the dead when he found them. And this habit he also continued, not knowing of any alternative. After hearing this absurd story, Inspector Moretti demanded Lorenzo describe the location of the cave to him. Lorenzo himself clearly required psychiatric evaluation and probably medical attention, so having Lorenzo show him this alleged cave in person was quite out of the question. Moretti had then set out, alone, to find the cave. It was there, in a previously undiscovered cavern, that a search party had found him two days later. He had suffered a cardiac arrest and wasn't able to walk. Had he not taken a police whistle with him, or had he proven incapable of blowing it, he would never have been found. This is where the official police report ends, but when Moretti's tongue is loosened by several glasses of Prosecco, he sometimes relates the nightmare vision that he experienced while lying in the cave. It was under such circumstances that Moretti related this second part of the story to me, and he related it as a simple hallucination or fevered dream, brought about, no doubt, by lack of oxygen to his brain. Moretti tries to laugh as he tells the story, but when you catch his face in unguarded moments, you'll see there an expression of barely suppressed terror or deep existential horror. One wonders whether Moretti was granted early retirement from the police force immediately after these events due, as he claims, to his heart condition, and after all he seems healthy enough now, three decades later, or because of the horror that he experienced, whether it was a dream or not. Here then is Moretti's story of his cave nightmare. The cave's entrance was a small hole concealed between overgrown tree roots. Moretti bravely, some would say foolishly, lowered himself in. Inside he found the cave mercifully horizontal and surprisingly easy to navigate. Probably it had been worn smooth by eons of use, by animals and humans, before somehow becoming hidden by shifting land, until one day, Lorenzo pushed his way out of a rabbit hole, if we take his story seriously. At this point, Moretti must have suffered a heart attack, due possibly to the exertion of lowering himself through the hole, coupled presumably with some underlying cardiac defect or inerrant blood clot. However, Moretti did not fall into complete oblivion. Instead, the vision or nightmare took over, where reality had come to an unexpected halt. In his vision, he rose to his feet again and walked on through the cave. At the end he found a silver ring surrounding a diaphanous membrane, through which was visible a dark, murky vista. He stepped through the ring and stumbled out into an unearthly hellscape. From the side of a steep hill, he saw a vast, soot-blackened desert, illuminated by a feeble sun, dotted here and there with clumps of pathological green, where repulsive plants, corrupt at the genetic level, had clung on to life. In the distance, the dark silhouettes of dead and dying trees of hideous proportion scarred the horizon, and in the foreground, the crumbling ruins of a monumental city of spires, broken stony fingers pointing blasphemously to gathering storm clouds in a dark and brooding sky. His first impulse was to run back through the membrane with all possible haste, but then something caught his attention. He thought he heard a voice crying pitifully for help nearby. He began to scramble down towards the noise, then stopped, listening. The morbid screaming of the wind made it impossible to distinguish any human voice with any certainty. Before he could arrive at any firm decision, the realisation dawned upon him that a ghastly winged shape was beating its way towards him. He staggered backwards, covering his face against the acrid rain that had begun to fall from ominous clouds. Suddenly the thing descended, and he saw it clearly, a grotesque thing with huge leathery wings and an insectoid face. It grasped him in filthy claw-like talons and plucked him into the air. A non-convulsive terror spread through him as he looked down upon a sweeping necrotic expanse of death and decay. The sickening beast was taking him towards the huge trees that lined the horizon. The rain ran into his eyes, stinging and blinding him and the ever-darkening sky became riven with huge lightning bolts, unnaturally straight and bluish. As they approached a tree of unspeakable proportions, he saw, to his horror, an enormous nest of open insectoid mouths, mandibles eagerly begging for food. He realized that the beast intended to feed him to its young. It suspended him there for some moments, as if torturing him, out of spite, but then threw him brutally to the side of an enormous nest made of sticks and rotting vegetation. Then it approached him, clicking its enormous mandibles, and began to probe and poke at him. Finally it settled its attention on his leg and began to position the mandibles around his thigh. Even in his shock, he saw what it intended to do. He was too big to feed hold to the gasping, screaming brood of unholy beastlings. It intended to sever his leg and feed them that. It meant to feed them to its young, bit by bit. The horror of it startled him into action. He remembered all at once that he was a policeman and was carrying a handgun. He drew it and fired three shots in quick succession at the thing's head. It dropped, emitting an unholy screeching sound. Then it was silent, and there was only the howling of the wind, the rumbling thunder, the sound of the rain hitting the spiny branches, and the nauseating screeching of the beast's revolting brood. Half cockroach, half bat, he muttered to himself. Dio Santo. Moretti was then faced with the problem that he was stuck high in the branches of a giant tree, he began to look for a way down. He estimates that it took him half a day to descend painfully and precariously to the ground. Then he began to make his way back towards the portal, according to his best estimate of its position. The journey took a day and a half, during which time he neither slept nor rested. Vast bolts of lightning struck the ground all around him, and several times he was compelled to shoot at revolting creatures that saw him as a potential source of protein. As he scrambled up the cliffs where the portal waited, he was seized with the conviction that he would never find it again. But find it he did. He staggered back through the membrane with an enormous sense of relief, deadened only by sheer exhaustion, and began to make his way towards the entrance of the cave. He had almost made it there when he collapsed into unconsciousness. There, the nightmare vision ended, and Moretti's world again converged with reality. When he awoke, he hadn't the energy to rise to his feet, or even to crawl. Outside, he heard the yapping of dogs, which he guessed correctly to be searching for him, and he began blowing his police whistle as vigorously as he could manage. After spending some time in hospital, Moretti's main aim in life was to have the cave dynamited, and this he did bypassing several important regulations in the process. He argued the cave to be a known hideout of dangerous criminals, which struck his superiors as rather irrational. After that, they had arranged for his early retirement on health grounds, and he had enthusiastically devoted himself to painting watercolours of Trieste. There are those who say that Moretti has a secret cache of other paintings, rarely shown to anyone. Those are paintings of an ugly charred landscape and a beast with the head of a cockroach and the body of a bat. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this story, please make your way to Arcturus and blow all of its planets to pieces with powerful nuclear devices. Also, if you would consider subscribing, that would be very helpful. Thank you. My name's John, and you have been listening to Science Horror.